God is at work. It's one of the most basic underlying principles of the Christian faith, of the Christian's life. No matter how good or bad things look, no matter the outward success or the inward trials, no matter the circumstances in life, the peaks and valleys, the joys and sorrows, throughout the ages, Christians have held on to this promise, God is at work. Many times God is at work against all odds in the most unlikely ways through some of the hardest things God is at work. And let's just be honest this morning. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that. Sometimes it's difficult for us to believe that God is at work. God's at work, but there seems to be so much pain and turmoil and struggle in this world and in my life. God is at work, but He feels so distant. He seems so far away. God is at work, then why am I still struggling with the same sins and fighting the same battles that I fought for so many years? God is at work is a precious promise that we cling to, and it's a challenging promise that we struggle with. We believe, O Lord, help our unbelief. Well, if it's any consolation to you, we're not the first group of people in the world that have struggled with understanding and believing that God is at work. Throughout the generations, there have been people who have held on to the precious promise that God's in control, that God is working, while in the same breath struggling to understand what it means to follow Him and trust Him and, and to believe in Him. So we cling to the promise of God at work and we struggle and we wrestle and we have questions. Here's the thing. It's in those times so often where our faith is strengthened, where we see that God is bigger and more powerful and more glorious and more beautiful and loving and true than we ever thought, than we ever dreamed possible. It's through the challenges in our lives, isn't it? It's through the challenges in our lives that we see that God truly is our portion, our strength, our hope, and our security. Exodus chapter 14 brings us to a crossroads in the book of Exodus that we've been looking at. A crossroads, a turning point, the peak in the drama between the Egyptians and God's people, the Israelites. The people of Israel, Israel do not belong to the Egyptians as slaves. They belong to God as daughters and sons. One commentator said it like this. In Exodus chapters 1 through 13, we saw that God came to his people and he heard their cry. And in Exodus 13 through 18, we see how God went with, how God goes with his people. So this morning, I want us to see the first part of Exodus chapter 14, the, the final buildup before God's incredible, miraculous exodus of his people across the Red Sea on dry land. And as we do so, I want us to see that God is at work, salvation comes against all odds, When there's no room for human pride or boasting, God saves. God delivers. 
God is at work. And it's so important for us to remember that because we forget it. We forget it. We need to know it and see it and celebrate. God himself is at work among us. Not just back then, God's at work now. So what's the first thing we see? In the first uh, few verses, we see that God is at work against all odds. God is at work against all odds. And, and he begins to demonstrate his work as he takes his people on the scenic route. Last week in Exodus 13, Woody reminded us about how God took his people out of Egypt. And if we were to map out the best way to go from Egypt to the promised land, uh, if we pulled out a map, it would, be, it would be very simple and straightforward. You'd take an easterly route, you'd stay near the Mediterranean Sea, you could make your way from where they were right across over to the promised land in no time. Maybe months, maybe even weeks if they really moved quickly. But God had other plans for his people, plans that took them on a southern, more circuitous route, a route that doesn't look like the best path on the map, but it was definitely the best path that God chose for his people. And God's plan, he took his people on this scenic route off the beaten path so that they could know and see that he's a God who loves them and cares for them. And he gave them an opportunity to trust in him more and more in their life. See, God was with them every step of the way. God cared for them. He, he was beside them. He was guiding and defending them with the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. It was the long way around, but it was just the right way in God's plan. It was God's purpose against all odds. Even the scenic route is the way that God planned for them. We've all been there, right? Maybe right now in your life, the path you've been down or the path you're starting to head down seems so weird and odd and you would have never scripted it this way. You'd have never planned it out that way. Why can't I just go down the easy road? Why can't we just jump on the spiritual interstate and be there in just a few hours? But there are times in our lives when we're on the not-so-scenic route, where there are twists and turns and roadblocks and detours, and we don't like it. And we don't want to be there. And it's so often in those times that God works in our lives. And he teaches us and he trains us to trust in him. God is at work against all odds, even when we have to go the long way around. That's what we see in the first few verses of chapter 14. Secondly, we see that God's people... God is working even though his people have their backs against the wall. Not only did God lead them on an unlikely path out of Egypt, it was finally time for their escape. It was their chance to get out of there. They were on the way out. Finally, we can escape this bondage, this slavery. Then they get to the Red Sea and God says, hold on, set up camp right here. 
with your back to the, to the, to the Red Sea and your face out and uh, just wait. Just wait. This was, humanly speaking, the most unstrategic, unprotected, least likely place to set up camp for around two million people trying to escape from their captors. It wasn't a leisurely camping trip. It wasn't a vacation at the beach. This left the people of God exposed. There was no place to hide. There was nowhere to run. I like to imagine the movie where you're running away from the people that are trying to get you and you're going through uh, the places in the city and you go down this one alley and you think you're going to escape, but there's no way out. And all the doors are locked and you can't climb a fence and there comes your enemy. Your back is against the wall. What a strategically bad position to be in Unless you're God. And you want to show your people that there is no other way, there's no other deliverance than fully trusting, fully resting, fully relying on you. God's people had their backs against the wall so that they could trust in God. You ever been in that position before in your life? Maybe at the end of your rope. Maybe at a place when you have to simply surrender and say, God, I can't do this anymore. There's nothing I can do. I need you. I need your help. It is terrifying to be in a position with your back against the wall. But you know what? It is a wonderful place to learn that God is at work even against all odds. That God is at work even in the circumstances in our lives. That we can trust ourselves and trust ourselves to God. God's people had their backs against the wall, but God was still working. As the story unfolds, we also see that there was a change in heart. One of the beautiful things about Exodus is that God not only delivers his people, but he tells them what he's going to do uh, time and time again. He tells them in uh, verses 3 and 4, oh, oh, by the way, Pharaoh is going to come after you. He's going to come chasing after you into the wilderness. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then the narrative explains how it happens. Pharaoh and his servants change their minds. It says in verses 5 and 6, what is this that we've done that we let Israel go from serving us? So he rallies his chariots, he rallies his armies. What we read here in verses 5 through 9, we should read as Pharaoh sent everything in his arsenal to go and get the Israelites and bring them back to Egypt. And they caught up with God's people. And there they were with their backs against the Red Sea. We've all been in situations before when we've been heartbroken and hurt that people change their minds. Maybe we've been in situations where we feel like people are out to get us or use us or abuse us and we don't understand. And even after all that and after all that's gone on here, God is still at work against all odds. 
God's at work even though his people respond in fear and in doubt. God's people see the Egyptians coming. They see their hopes of deliverance and escape from Egypt and slavery and misery. They see all of that slipping away right before them. And so they did what so many others have done in the past. Even though God had promised to be with them, even though God told them this was going to happen, even though God had promised deliverance, And he showed them along the way miraculous signs that he is the one true and living God. How did they respond? They doubted and they were afraid. They were terrified, horrified, undone. They cried out to Moses and they cried out to God. They doubted, they questioned. Their words are filled with sarcasm and accusation. One of the first things we see about them in verses 10 through uh, 12 is that they cried out to the Lord, which at first read seems like a good thing, but if you read the rest, it doesn't seem like a cry to God for help, but more a cry of accusation. Why, God, would you allow this to happen? And then the accusations and the fears and the doubts continue. Are there not enough graves in Egypt? Pretty strong words to say to Moses and effectively to say to God. It's ironic because the Egyptians were people who were obsessed with death. There were graves all over Egypt. They were people who were preoccupied with death. So those words must have stung Moses especially. Are there not enough tombs? Are there not enough graves in Egypt? Then he said, they say, what have you done, Moses? It's your fault. We're in this position. It's so easy for us to blame others when things don't go according to our plans. Leave us alone, it says in verse 12. These are haunting words. God's people say, at least some of them said, you should have just left us in Egypt. It would have been better for us to continue being slaves in Egypt than to come out here and die. How many times in your life have you thought, now we probably won't say it, but how many times have you thought, God, just leave me alone. Leave us alone. I like it here in my sin, in my bondage. We'd rather stay in bondage to sin so many times than live in the freedom of the gospel and obedience to Jesus Christ. We've all been in situations like this. Parents, you've had your teenage children lash out at you and you've had to make hard decisions about them. We've all seen little children come unglued when they don't get what they want. And just to be fair, uh, many of us adults, when we don't get what we want and things don't go according to our plans, when we're gripped with fear and doubt, what do we do? We lash out at those that we love, those who care about us, those who want what's best for us when things don't go according to our plans. God is still at work against all odds. I believe that's what these first 12 verses of chapter 14 are all about. God is at work. What are some of the ways in your life where you need to be reminded that God is at work? 
Maybe the path in your life or in the life of others is not going the way you want it to. And you're wrestling with bitterness and anger. Maybe you feel like your back is against the wall at work or with your family or with that secret sin. Maybe you're filled with fear or doubt and you've been lashing out at God and lashing out at others. Maybe you're tempted to think that your way, the way of sin, the way of hiding, the way of harboring bitterness and resentment is better than God's way of redemption. We've all been there. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Do not forget, God is at work. Against all odds, especially in those times, God is at work. Second thing I want us to see from this passage this morning is that God is at work and that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a refrain that's common in the Bible. It's a hallmark. It's a cornerstone of Christianity. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our God is a God of salvation, deliverance, and rescue. Outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, this event, the Exodus event, is the high watermark of God's uh, delivery and salvation in the Bible. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's a reminder for us that God is at work and that salvation belongs to Him. And as He prepares to save and deliver His people, He charges them. Now when we hear the word charge, we think of one thing, our credit cards. How much is the statement going to be this month? But this charge is an encouragement, it's a challenge from God to His people to listen, to respond, and to act And there are several aspects of this charge from God. Moses says it in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not. This is the most powerful form of imperative in the Old Testament. It's almost harsh. It's not the, hey, don't be afraid. It is fear not. Powerful, strong. I like to picture someone on the verge of hysteria and a friend or a parent or a leader comes along and grabs them by the shoulders and says, you need to get a hold of yourself. Don't be afraid. It's intense. These are hard words and they're very necessary. And this isn't meant to discourage people who struggle with fear and anxiety. Those are real things. The Lord knows about those things. He understands them. He's called us to cast our cares on Him. But here, in the midst of crisis and impending deliverance, God is calling His people to actively put their faith in Him. To trade in their fears for faith. And the imperative continues. It says in verse uh, 12, verse 13, Fear not, stand firm. Literally, there's only one word in Hebrew. The word is stand. It's a challenge, a charge. The idea is for God's people to stand firm, to take their stand, to hold their ground, to brace themselves, to believe that God is their God and that He will deliver them. He'll do what He promised to do. It's not a subtle charge. It's a challenge for them to stop saying and thinking things like, God just wants to kill us. Or it'd be better for us to remain slaves. It's a challenge to to remember to stand firm. The third thing it says here 
as we see that salvation comes from God, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. It's interesting. He doesn't challenge them to... He doesn't call them not to fear and stand and fight with everything you have to physically defeat the Egyptians. There are times when we have to fight. There are times when we have to battle sin or fight injustice. But here, in this time, God is about to deliver. And what he calls his people to do is watch. Watch what I will do. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of our God. In verse 14, it goes on. It says that the Lord will fight for you. We could spend weeks on verse 14. We could camp out here. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will wage war for you. This is the high point of this standoff between Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the true and living God, Yahweh. And he's going to show his people and he's going to show us through history That he is powerful, that he's mighty in battle, that he has all strength and all power, and that he fights for his people. God is at work because he's a God and salvation belongs to him. And then he says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Here's the contribution that they made to their deliverance. They gathered all their might. They worked together to fight off the Egyptians. No. All you have to do is be silent. This is absolutely profound. And it's also terribly difficult for us to do. It's the second person, personal pronoun, plural. Let me translate. Y'all, be silent. Be still. Think about how profound and powerful and beautiful this is. Be still and know that I am God. There are hundreds of thousands of Egyptians armed, ready to take them out. There is an impassable body of water behind them. There is no amount of military or diplomatic might that could deliver them. God brought them to this point so that they could know absolutely fully without a shadow of a doubt, God is at work. Salvation belongs to him. I think there are a few points of application for us, things that we can take away from this passage. First of all, because God is at work, because God is a God of salvation, salvation belongs to Him, I want to ask you this question. Have you quieted your heart and trusted in God? Have you quieted your heart and trusted in God? The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God will fight for us as we humble ourselves, as we bow the knee in submission and humility to Him, admitting that we're not God, but that He is God. It's so important for us to remember this because being a good person is not what makes someone a Christian. Going to church is not what makes someone a Christian. 
Just because your parents are Christians does not mean that you necessarily are a Christian. The question could be stated like this. Have you quieted your heart and trusted in God? And it's expressed so beautifully in the New Testament. Being a Christian means humbling ourselves before God. Trusting in Jesus Christ, admitting that we have messed up, that we sinned against God and other people, and and resting in Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His sacrificial death for us. He's our substitute. He's our redeemer, our hope, our life. It's admitting that we can't earn our salvation. We can't buy it. We can't add to it. We don't deserve it. We need to be silent and watch and trust. And rely on God that he's working. Salvation belongs to him. Have you quieted your heart and trusted in God? That's the first uh, takeaway I think we can take from this passage. Second is this. Because God is at work and because salvation belongs to him. Are you quieting your heart and trusting in God? See the difference? This isn't simply a snapshot of what it means to believe in God for the first time, but it's a call for us to reacclimate our lives, to readjust our thinking, to quiet our hearts day in and day out, hour by hour, minute by minute, and entrust ourselves to the God who brings salvation to us. It's an ongoing invitation to submit our wills and our hearts and our lives to God. What are the areas in your life where this is particularly difficult to do? What makes you angry or anxious or bitter or fearful? What are some of the things that are particularly difficult for you to let go? That just stick in your craw and you can't let it go? How is it hard for you to trust God or entrust yourself to God? Maybe it's money. Thinking about how much you have or how much you don't have. Maybe it's how certain people have wronged you and and you can't stop thinking about them. Maybe it has to do with trusting God with your children or your current situation or your future. Maybe it's trusting God with your health or your family or your situation or your career. Maybe you're afraid of fearlessly repenting of that sin that has its hooks so deep inside of you because you're afraid of what losing it might mean. God is a God of salvation. We can entrust ourselves to Him. God is at work because salvation belongs to Him. We have the freedom to quiet our hearts and to trust in God. And that's what we get to do this morning. That's exactly what we do when we come together to remember and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember that God is at work against all odds, that salvation belongs to Him. What better way to quiet our hearts and to trust in God than to eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of Christ's love and sacrifice for us? Let's pray together.